Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Tom Lavero is well-known in the D.C. area for his sports columns, radio gigs, and podcast presence. We spoke about his benefit concert this Sunday at Caddy's in Bethesda, Maryland, to benefit D.C. Grays baseball. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on. Tell me about this event. Who are the D.C. Grays? How'd you get involved with them? Well, the Grays are... Uh, essentially a nonprofit organization that's committed to creating baseball opportunities for inner city kids in the district. I mean, that's our mission. Uh, and we do that through twofold. One, we field a college baseball team in the Cal Ripken Summer Wooden Bat League, uh, from, made up of college kids from all over the country. It, it's like the Bethesda Big Train are one of the teams in our league. Uh, and, uh, but we have a commitment to recruit as many African American college players to play on our team. Uh, the DC Grays are named after the Homestead Grays, uh, the famous Negro League team that played many of their home games at Griffith Stadium in DC. So we have a commitment to that. And those kids that play a 40 game season will also help us conduct clinics in wards six, seven, and eight for kids in, in those, in those wards. Uh, but we also have another, uh, project we do run baseball's, uh, RBI program, baseball's basically little league program where we have about close to 300 young boys and girls from those same wards where we organize leagues, uh, recruit coaches, uh, buy all their equipment, all their uniforms and give them free baseball opportunities as well. And uh, it's all done through volunteer and fundraising, and that's the point of the concert. Wow, I mean, that's such a, a good cause. Are you, like, on the on the board? Do you coach any of the games, do you, or do you just watch from the stands? Or, you know, what's your, like, day-to-day involvement with the group? Well, I'm on the board, uh, and, uh, I mean, I support them as much as I can. Uh, I figured this is the closest I'll ever be to a baseball owner. You know, <laughs> I'm a board member of the Grays, so uh, this is the closest I'll be to George Steinbrenner. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I hear you all the time on the air, on, on the radio and podcast, talking about how great the owners in this town are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're my friends. They're my friends. I, I'd probably be just as bad, if, but I'm a hands-off owner. That's probably the best way to do it. Do you know anything about King Soul? I mean, I know they're a local band. We've seen them on posters and stuff around different shows around town. Well, uh, we first saw King Soul about 12 or 13 years ago, uh, at, uh, Hill Country Barbecue. And, uh, they changed our lives because we love dancing, but dancing to particularly old soul music. And these guys were just a knockout band. And uh, we became devout followers of them wherever they played. And we've been doing that ever since. Uh, they're, they're a colorful uh, group to watch, led by Tom Clifford, their lead singer. They do a lot of old uh, soul music, southern soul music. They do a lot of their original work, too. There's horns in the band. Any band with horns is okay with me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they, they've been playing in the area. You know, for, for, and it's a group of musicians that have played with different bands in the area for more than 30 years and have won numerous awards locally for their musical work. Uh, Mark Noon is one of the guitar players. Uh, so it, it's a group of musicians that like to have a good time 
and we'll guarantee you a good time if you go see them. That's great. And speak on the venue itself a little bit, because I personally I have a nice tie to, to Caddy's because that's where I met my wife. She was performing at Caddy's one night and we hit it off and the rest is history. So but how about you? Have, have you been down to Caddy's a bunch? Is that like a, a popular hangout for you? Well, it is. I mean, and, and they really have made a commitment. They've undergone new management in the past five or six years. And they really have a commitment now to live music as well as sports. Uh, so they have a lot of live, uh, performances there, uh, you know, with, with some really good bands. Uh, and I, I, I remember going to Caddy's from years back. Uh, and the new management has really stepped up and made it to, made it a class, uh, organization, a class bar, uh, someplace you can go and feel safe and enjoy yourself and, uh, good food, good drink. And, uh, they have good hearts because they're, they're allowing us to host, they're hosting this event for us on Sunday, July 11th. For sure. Yeah. I mean, at least, you know, from personal experience, you can see when you're, in, when you're back there watching the band, it's, it's like a nice intimate place. It doesn't feel like they're the band so far away. And it's just a great spot for live music. Personally, I, I think it's one of the best in, in the entire area. So it's from two to 5 PM tickets are what? 25 bucks, I think. Yeah. Tickets are $25. It's, it's a tax deductible donation. You can buy them online. You go to www.dcgrace.com and you just got to click on, on the uh, icon to buy the tickets. You can fa- find it on Twitter. I post something every day about the concert or, or my Facebook page as well. Awesome. Well, that's a lot of, you know, the, the details on the concert, and it uh, sounds like it's going to be a good time. But while we have you here, we got to talk about you, sir, a little bit yourself. I mean, you're a voice everyone in the area is going to know and love from sports radio and, and journalism itself. So, you know, this this event is all about, you know, the D.C. Grays and, you know, youth, particularly inner city youth. How does that tie into your, your own story? I mean, where were you? You grew up in, like, Brooklyn, right? So where, where were you as a sports fan as a kid? Where Did you play a lot yourself, or is it more like, you know, stickball and stuff out street well that that's exactly what it was uh i mean i used to play catch with a glove with my dad we we lived near prospect park in brooklyn growing up and we'd go play catch but there was no baseball in my neighborhood it was stick ball slap ball stoop ball punch ball anything you could do with a 25 cent spalding rubber ball basically <laughs> is is what we did so uh, I didn't really – we moved to the Poconos when I was 12, and I started playing baseball then. Uh, but I had already figured by the age of 10 that I wasn't going to be an athlete. I didn't have what it was going to take. So by the age of 10, I decided I wanted to be a sports writer. And I we, we lived near the Brooklyn Public Library, and I probably read every baseball biography they had in that library. I just couldn't get enough baseball. We were – we, I grew up about five blocks from where Ebbets Field used to be. Uh, I remember when they built Shea Stadium. Uh, I, I used to go see the Mets playing the polo grounds their first two years. So baseball was a big, important thing to me growing up in Brooklyn. I mean, my, my dad was a big baseball fan, and that was pretty much my introduction to the game. So were you a Brooklyn Dodgers guy then, if you were that close to Ebbets Field, or you mentioned the Mets? Were, were you a Mets fan later? Well, I was three years old, and I have this vague memory of my father taking me to a, a Dodgers game their last year in Brooklyn in 57, because I remember you could exit the ballpark on the field through these large outfield gates that they would open up. And I do remember doing that. And then I have a more vivid memory of them knocking it down in 1960 and watching them do that. Uh, but we were a National League house. We were a Brooklyn Dodger house, and then we were a New York Mets house. We hated the Yankees. That was that was persona non grata, except my dad gave me a pass because I was a Mickey Mantle fan. I feel like uh, everybody I, gets a pass on Mickey Mantle. Yeah, I just, I mean, he gave me a pass on Mickey Mantle, but we were definitely a National League uh, house, and we saw a lot of Mets games uh, during, you know, growing up in Brooklyn. That's fantastic. I, yeah, I always, I always wonder where the allegiances lie on. Cause, you know, there's a lot of, you know, local sportscasters and writers that, you know, you can tell. I don't want to call them homers cause I'm the same, you know, I, I root for all the local teams too. So who am I to say? But it's nice to see, you know, hear about who your allegiances are and how you carry them and it allows you sort of a different, uh, perspective when you're covering these teams, you know, because you, you're not so, you know, 
it tied to whether they win or lose, you have a little bit of a objective uh, slant when you're covering these local squads. Um, well, well, let me let me make this clear. I don't root for them anymore. Oh, I really? Mean, you're not yeah. a fan. So who are, who are you for now? Uh, I root for me. What, <laughs> whatever works best for me in the outcome of a game is what I root for. I mean, that's that's pretty much the case. Uh, I can remember when the Mets and the Cardinals uh, about 10 years ago were playing the seventh game of the National League Championship Series, and I was going to go cover the World Series. And I'm rooting for the Cardinals because if I if the Mets go, I'm going to Shea Stadium, an old crappy press box, staying in a lousy hotel in Queens. But if the Cardinals win, I'm going to a brand-new stadium and staying in a nice hotel in St. Louis. So I was rooting for the Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to see who you're rooting for then in that case. That's great. How about how about football-wise? So you're in Brooklyn, and then you go down to the Poconos. So who do you carry down with you? Is it Giants, or were you a Jets guy? Jets guy. Uh, a big, Jet, big, big Joe Namath guy, which made me a Jets guy. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'll, it's, it's all we, you have as a Jets fan, but, uh, I enjoyed that upset Super Bowl year of, of 1969. But that was a great year for me because in 69, uh, you know, you had the Jets, you had the Knicks. I was a huge Knicks fan and the Mets as well. So it's not going to get much better than 1969 for me. No, was that, was that Miracle Mets time too? Yes, it was. The Miracle wow. Mets with Gil Hodges as the manager. Wow. And then with the Knicks. Gil Hodges, whose, whose brother-in-law used to cut my hair in Brooklyn. Are you kidding me? No. What, what is that? Like a high and tight or what was it back then? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, high and tight, that could be a, a pitch or it could be a haircut. There you go. Yes, it could. What, so then were you particularly tickled when Gil Hodges was one of the players in Field of Dreams? <laughs> I mean, I had a letter from Gil Hodges. Uh, when I was sick, when I was a kid, uh, he sent me a letter. I'm sure his brother-in-law put him up to it. And uh, it was like a two-page handwritten letter. And I wish I still had it. One of those things that got lost along the many moves along the way. But uh, Gil Hodges, I mean, it was back in those days, the players lived in the, in the neighborhoods where you lived. You know, it, it wasn't like it, it is now. Right. Uh, players, I mean, you know, they shopped at the same places. They did business in the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, they, they had a good living, but it wasn't a gated community living. No, it was a completely different world for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned things that were lost in the many moves. What brought you down to this area? Was it when you went to work for the sun in Baltimore? Uh, well, I, I got it. I worked, uh, for a number of newspapers in, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And then I got a job in Washington, a one-year report, investigative reporting grant from a private foundation in 1983. And when that ran out, I was fortunate to get a job at the Baltimore Sun as a news editor. And I spent eight years there. And then I knew some people at the Washington Times. And I was a news reporter. The first 15 years I was in the business, I covered politics, government. I wrote about organized crime. Uh, I didn't cover sports. But when a sports reporting job opened at the Times in 92, I applied for it, and I knew I could do it. I knew I could cover sports. I mean, I had a pretty good knowledge of it. Uh, and uh, that was – I started in January of 92. My first day on the job at the Times, I was in Indianapolis – covering the opening of the Mike Tyson rape trial. Oh, my gosh. Talk about a first day. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, hey, that that's the perfect segue between your crime beat and sports right there. Perfect. Yes, it was. Exactly it was. And I'm forever grateful for the 15 years I did covering news because that gave me a foundation and a discipline uh, to some, to grasp some of the things in sports. I mean, because let's face it, Sports, it's not simply anymore just what happens on the field. There's a lot of complicated business issues that come up in, 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 game, in sports these days. And so that foundation of news gave me the opportunity to be able to have a good grasp of that stuff. 
Oh, not only business, but cultural, you know, yes. social commentary. You weave that in a lot of your columns, too. So you can tell your background for sure. Yeah, the sun, good memories for me at the sun, but I didn't get there till like, oh, five. So you were long gone at that point. But do you remember, I'm trying to remember who were, do you remember, was Michael Strago there reviewing movies or who was there at the time? Uh, well, uh, I worked with David Simon. Of course. I yeah. Worked, the wire I worked, and homicide. I yeah. The, I worked in the newsroom with Simon, Stephen Hunter was yeah. the uh, film critic when I was there. Wow. And in fact, he took the same buyout that I did. Oh, okay, he was part of that same wave, I guess. Yeah, the first buyout that they ever offered. Because uh, I remember uh, partying with him at the, at the, at the going away party. Uh, <laughs> now, now there's the writer, Stephen Hunter. Uh, I mean, just so, it, so the Sun was still, at that time, it was still uh, a, a pretty good newspaper back then and i used to cover western maryland for them uh but i worked with david simon which gave me the benefit of winding up being in an episode of the wire uh when he did his fifth season about newspapers uh what he did was he invited a lot of his old friends to appear as extras and small roles in that season and i was one of them yeah, that show was, it was genius how each season dealt with a different layer of the city. You know, it was like peeling a different onion and, and season five, yeah, was, was the media. And so you got, did you get any lines or were you sort of just in the background? No lines. Uh, but I say I had the biggest two seconds ever in HBO history. <laughs> okay. Because, uh, the next day I must have had a hundred phone calls and voicemails from people. Who had seen me. There's no doubt. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Daryl Green was going to throw out the first pitch at uh, a Nationals game. And I went down and interviewed him at the uh, restaurant that they have behind home plate, where all the $400 seats are. Okay. And he had a group of friends with him. And all of a sudden, one of the friends says during the interview, says, hey, you, were you in the wire? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And then all they wanted to talk about to me was the wire. And at some point I could tell Daryl was getting a little frustrated because I wasn't talking to him anymore. They were talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) There is like the fastest guy in NFL history and everyone wants to talk to you uh, about the wire. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, and all I wanted to do, believe me, was talk to Daryl Green. <laughs> I mean, he's one of the great. I, yeah. My Daryl my Green story is he was such a good guy. My grandfather waited in line to get, you know, I have a twin brother. My grandpa waited for, in line with, for Daryl Green to get an autograph for my twin and I. And he got to the front of the line after waiting like hours. And Daryl Green's handler says, Oh, I'm sorry, but you know, you can't get multiple autographs. You can only do one at a time. You gotta go back to the end of the line, Grandpa. <laughs> and Dale Green stepped in and said, No, 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 I got twin daughters or nieces, something myself, and he said he signed both. But I always thought Daryl Green was a good guy for that. Stand up guy, uh one of the all time greats and a remarkable career to to play twenty years in the NFL uh as a defensive player uh is a testament to his toughness. I'm so glad that a name like Daryl Green came up because I feel like you're such a strong voice for, you know, the entire world wasn't invented yesterday, like to young fans of sports. And I I say the same thing with movies, too. And it's like, yes, this new movie's great. Yes, this new athlete's great. But when you're putting together like your all time list, you have to factor in the things that came first that enabled all of these things to happen. Like, talk, speak to that a little bit, because you're like one of our bastions of hope of reminding people that the world didn't start yesterday with these stats. <laughs> well, the, the all-timer is Will Chamberlain. Right. I mean, well, every conversation that takes place online about the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball, you know, it consists of Michael Jordan, LeBron James, uh, Kevin Durant, Magic Johnson, as if Will Chamberlain didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and, and Bill Russell too. Sure. But Will Chamberlain, he, they changed the game for him. Right. I mean, he was, to me, Will Chamberlain is the most remarkable athlete we've ever seen play in professional sports. To me, he is the greatest basketball player of all time. He could do pretty much whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted. I mean, he averaged uh, 50 points a game 
for for a season. And I mean, he he would play forty eight minutes, the full forty eight minutes, almost the whole year. I think he did one season. Did not miss one single minute of any game. So I mean, to me, uh, when you're talking about Michael Jordan, you're talking about second or third place behind Will Chamberlain and maybe Bill Russell. But I mean, you know, some of these young kids. They, they look at you when you, like you've got two heads if you bring up Will Chamberlain. I don't think anyone can conceive and just, you know, and they take a YouTube journey and, and, and see what Will Chamberlain can do. I recommend it to anyone. No one's even come close to a hundred in a game. Not even close. No, no. I mean, and he led the league in assists one year just because he wanted to. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's not not knocking, you know, I mean, Jordan was my guy because that's who I grew up with. And he was so clutch in the finals. But and of course, I know other people would stick up for for magic and ever. Uh, there's an argument for all all three of those guys. But Wilt is, has to be in that conversation. I, I, I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, is there anyone else in, in other sports that, you know, educate our, our young listeners here then? So if Wilt's your basketball guy, who would you say your football guy is? I know you're a Namath, you know, fan as a kid, but who would be like your, your greatest? Is it Jim Brown to you or who, or who would it be? Well, I tell you what, Tom Brady has, has really, uh, challenged that conversation. Right. I mean, pr- particularly what he did last year, uh, going to another team in Tampa and, uh, you know, taking them to to the Super Bowl. I, I've been a Jim Brown stalwart for years uh, as the greatest NFL player of all time, a guy who played nine years, gained 12,000 yards, uh, and people still talk to him when he was 44, 45, about making a comeback, you know. So uh, Jim Brown, I felt, was the greatest of all time. I think Tom Brady is is – is his is his rival at this point? Uh, what he what the success he's having is unprecedented. Uh, and look, Jim Brown's a, a, a greater athlete, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about football player. And I never thought I'd say this, but uh, I think that I have to consider Tom Brady as the greatest NFL player of all time. So it's not like I'm locked in the Middle Ages, and that everybody I wouldn't consider a player playing today. Uh, as one of the greatest. I think Brady has to be, you know, uh, the flag bearer for that now. Yeah, it's one of those. It's good to hear you say that because that almost gives more credence to your um, your, your argument here. It, it's not just a, you know, old get-off-my-lawn guy. It's you, you measure if the accomplishment is there, you you will acknowledge it like Tom Brady. And, you know, we, we all, there's a lot of us that don't like Tom Brady, just like you said you hate the Yankees growing up. But you do have to acknowledge what he's accomplished. So, absolutely, he's in that conversation. But And Jim Brown, great point. He He's sort of like, you know, I'm trying to think of someone. It's, imagine like a Barry Sanders who, who you always wondered what the stats could have been if he didn't hang it up. So, you know, Brown Brown could have had even higher stats if he stuck around. Um, yeah, but his his retirement story is so great. He quit because they wouldn't give him time off to do the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> Man, what a great legendary movie, too. I know. I know. So, I mean, I mean, he'll he'll forever be one of my favorites just for that alone. Yeah, that's. I don't think Tom Brady will will ever do that. There will not won't be ever make remake of a Dirty Dozen. Tom <laughs> <laughs> reunite with Belichick and ten other guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would also. You'd have to throw Jerry Rice in that conversation. Lawrence Taylor to me was just the most dominant on defense I've ever seen. Uh, Walter Payton. There's ones you'd throw in, but I think I think you're you're right there, man. Um, all right. How about baseball? Who would be your, your, your guy that, that maybe you young folks, uh, might not fully appreciate? You know, that, that's interesting. The, the, uh, I'll, I'll give you the greatest baseball player who I think is in, in the history of the game. Uh, I think is Willie Mays. I think Babe Ruth is a very close, close to being the greatest of all time. But, but, you know, when you bring up Babe Ruth, there's all kinds of baggage that comes with it. And I think it's unfair to Babe Ruth, you know, the idea that he didn't, you know, he didn't play when, when black players were allowed to play. Right. But that, again, that wasn't Babe Ruth's fault. If Babe Ruth, if, if you've done any education on him, was uh, very close to a lot of the Negro League players, they would have had no problem playing with black players. And that, that was an, an ownership 
baseball management issue. I think Ruth just, I think Ruth, uh, still get, gets undercut because of that. But I would say Willie Mays is probably the greatest of all time. But the greatest ball player I ever saw day in and day out, uh, for at least one season, Roberto Alomar. Wow. With, you throw him with, in with the, with the Orioles. Just you're saying for a one season thing. Yeah. I mean, I, he could, he did everything. He was just, re, uh, I mean, he played second base like nobody I've ever seen before, was such a clutch hitter, was a remarkable base runner. I mean, you know, and I think in the 96 season, the best I ever saw. And the closest we see, I say we because I'm an O's guy. Uh, the closest we got, I think Jeffrey Mayer in, at Yankee Stadium kind of ended that run there. <laughs> but um, that was the, the last, I think, truly great team they had because you had Alomar at second, obviously Ripken at short. You had Palmero at first. Uh, who else was on that team? Wasn't Bobby Bonilla on that team? Messina. Bobby Bonilla, Brady Anderson, oh, BJ wow. Surhoff were in the outfield. And I think, I think, was Todd Zeal at third base, I think, at that point? I by by the end of the maybe, season? Maybe. I can't remember now. Um, it was 96, so. Um, yeah. And who was catching? Was it Hoyles? Uh, yeah, it was Hoyles. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. You, you, you mentioned your, um, you know, your Ebbets Field memory at age three, but for me, it was, I got, I, for me, it was, I got one game at the old Memorial Stadium and it happened to be, it happened to be a no hitter against the Orioles. It was Wilson Alvarez of the White Sox and my brother and I are sitting there. Dad, this is boring. Nobody's getting hit. And he's like, you just, just be, trust me. It's a big thing. And we're like, why? He's like, well, I can't say because it'll jinx it, but. <laughs> but, uh, one good game at Memorial and then, t- but then that oasis that, that, Palace of a ballpark of Cannon Yards opened up. How cool was it? I mean, you you were writing for the Sun at the Times, right? Or maybe you had just you had just left the, the Sun at the time, right? Yeah, I had just started at the Times when Camden Yards opened. I was there for opening day, uh, where Rick Sutcliffe uh, beat the Indians uh, on opening day. I wound up writing a book about Camden Yards called Home of the Game because uh, the impact of that ballpark helped save baseball. Uh, you know, people, people, you know, are misinformed about, you know, what has carried baseball through the last 25 to 30 years. You hear a lot of arguments that say, you know, like steroids, uh, help put people in the seats. Well, it was bricks and mortar that wound up putting people in the seats. They built 20 ballparks, new ballparks in 20 years, uh, in baseball, starting with Camden Yards. And pretty much most of them were patterned after that Camden Yards model, taking the traditional old style and modernizing it. I mean, it's – Bud Selig said the building of Camden Yards is one of the most significant moments in the history of modern baseball. And he, he's right. It really was. I mean, it, and it's still a great ballpark uh, to this day. I'm with you entirely, and I love to hear you say that. It's yeah, I mean, Seelig's quote's perfect. I mean, literally, it, it started the trend of ballparks that put butts back in the seats, and also right before, yeah, that home run chase, the steroid thing with Maguire Sosa was was a huge deal. But Ripken streak, I think, saved the game before that even. So I would think that one-two punch of Cannon Yards and then those banners of twenty-one thirty-one unfurling on the warehouse, that one-two punch, I think, is what basically saved it after the strike. I really I think did. You're- I think, I think you're right about Ripken. I'll never forget because I covered that year, uh, for the team. Uh, like the last, the four weeks leading up to the night he broke the record, or even maybe it was six weeks after every home game, Cal Ripken would come out on the field and sign autographs for 90 minutes. Wow. In his uniform after playing a game, there'd be a line throughout the stadium. All through the stadium, weaving all over, people waiting to get autographs. And he did it after every home game because he felt an obligation, uh, given what we just talked about, given the trouble that, uh, that baseball's image was in following the strike. And, and that's, that's just part of the magic. Not only did he play every game at, at a, you know, a Hall of Fame all-star level, but he stuck around and signed things for the fans. I mean, what, what a perfect person. If he, if Lou Gehrig could, couldn't have handpicked a better person to break his streak. And you say you wrote the book on Camden Yards. I actually think I have, I think I read that book. I feel like I'm in, I'm, uh, George C. Scott and Patton saying, I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> You're now Rommel, but you know, um, 
But then you also you also wrote Hail Victory about about the Washington football team. Uh, remind our listeners about that. I'm sure they can still pick that up, right? Online. Yeah, I'm sure you you can buy it on Amazon for a penny or something like that now <laughs> these days. But uh, yeah, it's I think I think it's a good book. It's an oral history of the team that goes back to 1932 when they were first founded in Boston, and it includes uh, an interview with Sammy Baugh that I was able to do. Uh, you know, before he passed away. I mean, I consider of, of the list of, of gifts I've been given in this business, one of them was a chance to, to talk to Sammy Ball. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a Dan Snyder story. Oh, about, absolutely. About I would love to hear it. And, and before you do that, Sammy Ball definitely in that conversation of underrated old athletes. Yes. Do it all, all the different positions too. But anyway, all right. What's the Dan Snyder story? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I've never met Dan Snyder. Uh, I never met him in person. All the years I've covered sports, all the years I've written about him, I've never had the pleasure. Uh, but, uh, about a year after Hail Victory came out, uh, I got an email from Carl Swanson, uh, one of Snyder's henchmen over there, uh, at, uh, at, at the park. And I, before I opened it, I thought, oh, and the title was, I think, Hail Victory. Uh, about my book, and I thought, oh, I'm getting sued. You know, I, I was afraid to open it because I, I figured I'm getting sued for something. And it turns out he had read the book and liked it so much he was going to buy about a dozen copies and wanted to know if I would, if he sent them, if I would autograph them for him. So you signed your book for Dan Snyder and Company. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I was happy to do it because I thought I was going to get sued. That's the only contact I've ever had with Dan Snyder. Now, if it was reversed and he was signing stuff for you, would he write Dan or Mr. Snyder? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And that says all you need to know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before we hop off here, you've been generous with your time. I do, I, I do want to ask about, you know, the, the ESPN 980 days. Um, and I've heard you talk, you know, on Kevin Sheehan's podcast because you guys did the sport, the sports fix together back in the day and you still go on his podcast. But, you know, talk about how that was such a, a cool time that you, that you got to be a part of such a great group of guys with Zabe and Andy and everybody. You were part of something special there before, you know, that, that all got disbanded. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk about how much we miss it to this day, how fun it was to do, to have like Coach Thompson walk in our studio about 10 minutes before we were done with the show, uh, and, and sit there and give it and, you know, like off the air, give us grief about something we were, we were just talking about. Uh, I mean, it's John Thompson, you know, uh, Doc Walker, who played nine years in the NFL, who was so helpful to me because I was a newspaper guy doing radio. I wasn't a radio guy. And Doc was so helpful to me, uh, in, in that part of my career. And Zave and Andy were so generous. They were the ones who started me by putting me on as a guest on the sports reporters. Probably back in 1999. Oh, wow. The first time I went on the sports reporters. And I guess I did good enough that, that they kept having me back. Uh, and that's pretty much uh, how it started for me, uh, doing sports talk radio, being a guest on the sports reporters. And I miss those days. It was, it was a lot of fun. But, you know, uh, the sports fix had seven years. Uh, and you know more than anyone what a volatile business, uh, radio is. So I'm thankful for those years. Yeah. Why'd we get in radio again? <laughs> <laughs> Guess it just sort of happened. Well, you're on, we can hear you on 1067, the fan too, as well, right? Don't you do a segment on there too? Uh, not anymore. Okay. Uh, nope. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with that. I'm pretty much, uh, on my own. I'm just doing Kevin's podcast twice a week, the Kevin C. Sheehan show. And if any of our listeners haven't, you know, subscribed and downloaded and rated that five stars and left a review and all that good stuff, do it now because I'm telling you, man, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I know I'm an entertainment reporter guy, but I listen to that thing almost daily. It's a great show. I love when he has you. So wait, Kevin's not here to defend himself now. So talk about Kevin a little bit. Embarrass him about why he's so good at what he does. Oh, well, because, because he's a nerd. That's why. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a strange nerd. Because he's an everyday guy, you know. I mean, he's the kind of guy you like to drink with, right? Uh, and hang out with, obviously, great, great like that. But uh, he's got this nerdish quality about him. 
He's got, he, I mean, who, well, now everybody does it, but who comes up with a mock NFL schedule? He started that crazy trend. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's like the ultimate nerd act is, 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 you know, predicting what, you know, the schedule is going to be. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that, that's a re- revelation of kind of who he is, but, uh, he's been a great partner, uh, for many years and a good friend. And I think, I don't know, I think, yes, there's that, like you say, nerdy, but like encyclopedic knowledge of all things, you know, RFK Stadium and the, the Terps, of course, loves talking Terps and him and Van Pelt. But I think his heart shines through too, where all of you guys, you know, have to leave this, the radio station and now he gets to have you on. He has Coolio on, he, you know, all, uh, Tim Murray on, you know, all these, um, Al Galdi, all these voices, uh, get to show back up. I think that's sort of, I don't, I don't know. I, maybe we're talking too, too highly of him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's nice that he, that he has you guys on. And, and I think you guys are uh, kind of like, what do you call it? Like a bit of an odd couple. I, I love hearing you banter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, that's so great. Well, um, before we run, you know, I, I did mention I am an entertainment guy and I know, um, I've heard some of your stuff you like over the years. You, you'll talk, you know, on Kevin's show, you'll talk about The Office and what shows, uh, you know, other than The Wire that you were in, um, you know, would, would you throw out as like your favorite shows of all time, comedy or, or drama? Well, for comedy, I'm a big odd, the odd couple with Jack Klugman and, and, and Tony Randall. Yeah. Uh, you know, Barney Miller, uh, as far as comedy is one of my favorites, uh, of, of all time. Uh, network drama, you know, Hill Street Blues, I think was the gold standard, sure. uh, for, for that. And NYPD Blue. I mean, I think Dennis France was probably maybe the greatest television actor of his time. Uh, what, what he did. But, uh, you know, as far as like, you know, cable, uh, I'm a big Sopranos guy and Breaking Bad as well. Oh, Sopranos. Uh, I know everyone gives slack about that final, sh- the, the, you know, the cut to black, but I think if you watch it back, I think it's genius. I think it's so, it's totally the, it's totally the man in the members only jacket that did it. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the ending myself. <laughs> not a big I'm, fan. I didn't, I didn't need to 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 be left as to wondering what happened to Tony. Everybody knew from the first show what was going to happen to Tony. You know, right. I mean, so uh, I, I I don't know. I I wasn't a big fan of the ending. But let me just point out because it reminded me one of my favorite shows of all time, also written uh, by David Chase. Uh, many episodes, The Rockford Files. Oh man, good stuff. One of the best. Good stuff. And he and he was the writer on many episodes of The Rockford Files. Oh, that's a nice drop. Yeah, yeah, man. To me, The Sopranos probably see. I saw it sort of in hindsight because I think I was like in like high school when it came out or something. So I already knew that it was a cut to black, so it wasn't as shocking to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I went back and and studied it, like you know, more of like a film student studying something that already knew it. So right. I think, man, if you watch it, there's like a little pattern that happens where the the bell will ring, and then there's a shot of Tony's face looking up. And then you see his POV. Bell rings, Tony's face, POV. Bell rings, Tony's face, POV. <laughs> and in the last one, it's bell rings, Tony's face, black. So that's his POV. I think that, I think that, I think he's dead. So anyway, we could talk all day. But for me, man, it's Seinfeld. I'm a Seinfeld guy. Yeah, I, I mean, I love Seinfeld. But, uh, I mean, the, I, I put the odd couple and, and Barney Miller, uh, ahead of it. And the office is, is, is great as well. I, I you know, I mean, uh, I still have on my DVR about 45 odd couple episodes I take from MeTV or some other network. Right. Uh, and I still watch those. Oh, and the odd couple movie, the original movie, 68, was, was great as well with Lemon and Matthew. One of those, few, uh, one of those few times where, uh, the movie and the TV show both turn out to be great on their own. You could throw MASH in there as, as an example yes. of that as well. Well, Absolutely. speaking of movies, uh, before we run, what, what are, what movies is the Tom Lavero, you know, all time, either sports movies or, or otherwise? Is uh, there one, if you see it on TV, you have to watch it. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's it. The, the, the one that makes you stop, uh, channel surfing. Uh, I mean, it's always The Godfather. Oh, I'm with you, man. One and it's, two combined is the greatest yeah, movie of all time. It's always Gladiator. Sure. Uh, but uh, my all-time favorite movie is 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 uh, Cool Hand Luke. 
Oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. That movie's a masterpiece. <laughs> it really is. And you know what? It, it, it works on multiple levels. Like the first time you see it, it you know, it's just a, a fun, you know, romp of, it's like, you know, he, I mean, Kuan Luke is like the original, you know, Jack Nicholson in Cuckoo's Nest or Andy Dufresne in Shawshank. Like he goes in and stirs it up. But you watch that thing again. There's like a whole Christ allegory going on with it. You know, the way he lays on the table and praying. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the 50 eggs is, 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 is his miracle. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And there's yeah. like 12 disciples enlisted in the credits. And then, you know, in the end, he's praying in the garden and Dragline uh, betrays him like Judas. He's praying, he goes literally into church at the end. Um, <laughs> and then the final shot is the crossroads. It's like a like a crucifix and, and the, the paper that they rip up and tape back together because they want to believe in him so bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, what a great movie. What about sports movies? Do you have one that's your favorite? And that's hard to say. Uh, it is hard to say. I mean, now look, I think boxing movies should be in a separate category from sports movies. Oh man. Because boxing, I mean, I mean, there are so many more boxing movies than any other sport. And so many good you know. boxing movies. Yeah. Well, because it, it, this is why I love covering boxing. That's where the stories are. I mean, that's where the best stories are. I mean, it, it's no coincidence that people make more boxing movies than any other sport because the, the drama of somebody usually coming up under difficult circumstances to literally fight their way uh, to uh, a level where they are celebrated. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great story under any circumstances. So raging bull, I would put, even though most people would say it's not a boxing movie, uh, I would still put for, uh, to me as, as my favorite sports movie. It is one of the greatest movies that my eyes have ever seen. Scorsese is an absolute master in that movie. Like, even the size of the ring grows depending on, symbolically, of where Jake LaMotta is in his emotional state. But, man, it, that, like, long single take when he's he, when him and Joe Pesci are back in the dressing room and, and he goes out and the camera follows him all the way out to the ring and that long single take and that Miscogni uh, Italian opera music and the slow-mo opening. I mean, it is, oh, and oh, my God, when he fights Sugar Ray Robinson with all the quick cutting in the end and the flash bombs yeah. and it is a piece of work, man. It I'm, really is. I'm amazed. It, it, I would put uh, I would put North Dallas Forty as my favorite football play, uh, movie of all time. And, underrated. Uh, yes, very very underrated. And and baseball, uh, you know, I know it's not it's not true to the the book, but. Uh, I mean, the, I, I stop every time the natural is on TV. Oh, uh, you see, you like, yeah, you like a little magic, magical reel. I mean, yeah. Fun, man. With a, a, what is it? A lightning struck a tree and then he makes Wonder Boy bat out of yeah. that. And yeah, I mean, I'm with you. And that's why, that's the same reason I love Field of Dreams too, because you get the baseball history, but the, you know, I like those magic. It's a little about, about a little more than baseball, you know? Yes. So. Well, speaking of movies, I hear you, you've written a couple screenplays. Are, are we allowed to divulge any premises, or can I, can I try to help hook you up in the entertainment industry on this? <laughs> well, I know I know that you're very active and and winning contests left and right, from what I followed uh, from from your work. Placing uh, in hope... contests, not winning them. <laughs> okay. Well, I get close I and never win. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope when I grow up someday, I'm just like you. Uh... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was part of the COVID shutdown. I was, uh, I was determined to have something to show for this time where I was basically locked in my house for, for a year. So uh, I've been meaning to write screenplays for years, always struggle with dialogue. Uh, and, uh, this time I said, well, I'll just write bad dialogue and see how that goes. And I just <laughs> sort of plowed ahead. And it turned out a little bit better than what I thought. And I had the momentum from the first one, and I just kept going and wrote a second one. I love it. Yeah, and that's the way to do it, man, that you can't stare at that blinking cursor on the page or worry about your dialogue or if certain scenes not working or something. You can get to that on the, you know, when you polish it up for a second or a third draft. But the, the most important thing with the first draft is just finishing it. That's <laughs> how so you did. Absolutely. Are you allowed to I say was... the premise, or is it like sure, a lock and key? Sure. No, 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 no. They're, 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 they're protected. So, uh, one of them is, uh, about Lizzie Murphy, the first woman to ever play professional baseball with major league baseball players. Oh, wow. Uh, back in the early 20th century, 
she played in an all-star game with a bunch of major league players at Fenway Park in 1922. And it's about her life and her struggle because she played with men her entire uh, career as a baseball player. Uh, and uh, the second one is about a professional wrestler named Sputnik Monroe who forced the integration of public events in the city of Memphis. Wow. I'm a pro wrestling guy, man. Not so much lately because it's changed, but I, I would dig reading both of those. The first one sounds like it's a, uh, um, it predates a league of their own. I feel like there's a, there would be totally a, a hot market for a story on the, you know, the first professional woman that played with the guys. You kidding me? That, that would be, I feel like producers would eat that up. Well, you would think so. Uh, but we also know it's like a lottery. It's like buying a lottery ticket, you know? So I just figure I got a lottery ticket. I'm in the game. Let's see what happens. You gotta have something if you're gonna sell it. You know what I mean? You can't, right. it's gotta exist in some form. But you're right, it is such a, it's almost like, someone told me an analogy, like it's like a bunch, it's like you're all, a million people shooting at the same basketball hoop. You know, is your ball gonna yeah. go? <laughs> yeah. But, um, it's such a tough racket to get into, but you gotta play to win. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. The, the wrestling movie, I describe it as a civil rights rock and roll wrestling movie. I love it. Wait, when was Sputnik Monroe? What time period? He wrestled in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So is he like a Bruno San Martino era? Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he was actually. He, he, he was. Uh, and I interviewed him. The reason I came across Sputnik Monroe was I was in Memphis in 2000 covering the Lennox Lewis Mike Tyson fight. Mm. And they, and the Smithsonian has a rock and soul museum in Memphis. And in the middle of the museum, they have the costume that Sputnik Monroe wore when he went into the ring. I mean, so so you have this wrestler's costume in the middle of this rock and soul museum, and they do that because of his role, uh, his influence in, uh, you know, breaking the barrier and forcing them to integrate public events in the city of Memphis because he was very close to the black community in Memphis. Uh, and for a white wrestler at that time, that was pretty unusual. So that got me interested in it, and I tracked him down and did a big story and interview with him. And I've always kept it in my mind that uh, this is a movie. So I finally did it. Wow. And just that whole era, too. Of, it wasn't so, you know, you flip on wrestling now. It's such a corporatized, publicly traded thing. And the grit and magic is all that. It's too watered down, if you ask me, nowadays. But back then, like you're, the era you're talking about, it was all the different territories. So you had, like, that Memphis territory. It sounds like he set him and Billy Wicks set an attendance record that lasted until the Monday Night Wars, which was, you know, WWF first WCW, Stone Cold and The Rock and the like. But so it sounds like they they packed it into a building and set an attendance record. Is that in your script? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, they did it outdoors at a, at a minor league ballpark. I think it was Rickwood Field or, 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 or something like that. And uh, the referee, I believe, was Rocky Marciano. Wow. Uh, for oh, that. Wow. Apparently Sputnik's original ring name was Rocky Monroe. Yeah, uh, it was, it was uh, Roscoe Brumbaugh was his name, was supposedly his original name. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad he, you know, retired the Rocky part because, you know, uh, Stallone and then Dwayne Johnson, I think, put it to yeah. later. But um, Rocky, also underrated. Rocky, Rocky, I know it's more mainstream, but that first Rocky, I think, um, you know, it's not as great directed as Raging Bull, but it's it's got more going for it than I think people want to give it credit for. I, I love that original Rocky. Oh, yeah. anyone, I remember all my friends walking out of the theater after seeing Rocky. Uh, and they all felt like they could go 15 rounds with the champ. That was, now, Rock, original Rockies, one of the classics. Oh, it is one of the most, it is like the inspirational underdog story you could ever think of. Right? I mean, I guess Rudy throw that in there, but Rocky is the, that is the underdog movie of all time for me. And yeah. I love that. And I, the fact that he doesn't win in the end. I mean, there's so many, so yes. many movies follow the, Perfect. follow the team to the, the state championship, and you know they're going to win the whole time, but Rocky yeah. had the guts to lose. I mean, it was an underdog itself, because think of the movies that it beat that year, like Taxi Driver and All the President's Men and Network and Marathon. yeah, I know. Roman and, man, that, wow. Man, Tom, I could talk movies and, and sports with you all day, but um, I, I've kept you here almost an hour, so I should probably let you run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you being so generous having me on, Jason.
Absolutely. And before, you know, let's wrap it back around. So remind everyone again uh, about the event at Caddy's, you know, when and where and who it benefits. Okay. It's uh, next Sunday, July 11th at Caddy's on Cordell Bethesda from 2 to 5 p.m. Uh, it's a benefit concert for the D.C. Grays, the baseball organization that helps bring baseball opportunities to inner city kids in the district. It's $25 ticket donation. It's great music for a great cause. You can find tickets on the D.C. Grays website, www.dcgrays.com. Uh, I'll be there, and uh, I look forward to seeing all of you. Awesome. Tom Lavero on WTOP, everybody. Check him out. Uh, where can we read you? I'm still writing for the Washington Times, uh, so you can still read me in the Washington Times. Uh, I'm still hanging on by a thread, but I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And check him out on the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast uh, and, and on Twitter, too. What? Throw out your Twitter handle for everybody. Tom Lavero, all one word. T-H-O-M is, is the uh, first uh, name, not T-O-M. You know, it's funny. My second newspaper job, I changed it to T-H-O-M because I thought it jumped off the paper paper more. So that's that's why I did it. <laughs> it is a little more memorable to have the H in there. Yes. Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This was awesome getting to hear not only about this cool event, but, you know, your your whole journey as a sports writer and your favorite shows and movies. I think we covered a lot in an hour. <laughs> yes, we did. I enjoyed every bit of it. All right. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.